Thank you very much. I appreciate the introduction very much. Um, and also want to <coughs> acknowledge the presence of my colleague, fellow Rosh Hashiva and Yeshiva Sarbanitz Kohanan, Rav Tursky. I have to apologize to him in advance. I have something after I'm speaking, so I have to run out. Otherwise, I would have been very... Um, um, it would have been an honor for me to sit and to hear his presentation as well, so I, I have to catch it on the tape. But uh, I know everybody is in for a, for a very special treat. Let me begin with a disclaimer. Um, given the amount of time uh, given to address a very complex and a very important uh, topic this evening, um, I have a reputation not for being uh, always uh, brief and succinct, so the combination of those two makes... Uh, doing the topic in a comprehensive way certainly um, impossible. Uh, given the complexity of it, the importance of it, and the time, I say the presentation is uh, likely to be cut significantly uh, and inadequate to the, to the uh, importance of the topic. So rather, this evening, I think what I'm about to say should be viewed more as a kind of framework or general introduction than... Um, a more comprehensive or concrete uh, presentation. And if anybody ever wants elaboration, uh, I'd be happy to come back some other time and fill in the details, especially in a matter uh, like the topic being discussed this evening, social change and halacha, the, the details really are critical. And the more concrete one can be in discussing them, um, the more effective, I think. And yet, without a framework to deal with, um, I think it's almost impossible to proceed. So because of time constraints, I'd also like to outline uh, what it is that I'd like to accomplish in this general introduction to foreshadow a bit what I want to say. I'd like to begin by providing some kind of background to illuminate the centrality of halacha as a system, as the foundation of all Jewish life, and especially to underscore the uniqueness of halacha as a system um, which really encompasses every aspect of what one's life, especially vis-a-vis other legal systems. This will establish the ideal nature of a comprehensive halakha, which we view as Dvar Hashem, literally the Word of God. It will also establish the need for significantly high level of responsibility, the high stakes really that are involved in properly trying to deliberate and apply halakha in changing conditions, um, especially when those changes really bring into question in a very sensitive way um, our allegiance to the principles of halakha. At the same time, it's crucial that we appreciate the inherent dialectic um, that confronts halakha's approach to the very notion of change. If halakha is divine truth, which we know that it is, and Torah Hashem is indeed Torah Hashem Tanima, it is the embodiment of perfection, then our first impulse, of course, is to preserve and to protect and to cherish received halacha as much as possible. We would want as much as possible to deny change and to reject change because, of course, why should one tamper with perfection? At the same time, our tradition establishes unequivocally that halacha is a real system one that is capable of and even intended to be applied in the real world which we all inhabit. It's supposed to adapt to all circumstances. It doesn't adapt, but it adapts its application, at least, to all circumstances, demanding that we confront halakhic change in a way that is responsible, even when painful decisions are sometimes necessary. But which also establishes the possibility that occasionally social realities, new realities, new conditions provide an opportunity actually to implement halakha more ideally, more perfectly, to better apply the divine halakhic principles and values given conducive circumstances. In other words, social change and social um, conditions changing can occasionally be a positive thing as well. Then, I'd like briefly to address how the integrity on the one hand and the dynamism of halakha on the other operate as indeed 
timeless divine halakha confronts and interacts with change on different levels. Crucial to these approaches is also the decisive input of the posek, who, after all, presides um, over this process. If I have an opportunity, I'd like briefly to examine some examples of how halakha confronts change, if time permits, even analyze very briefly one or two of the issues in contemporary life that um, exemplify these issues. Let me begin by focusing on the first point. Halakha as a unique system of law. The unique perspective of halakha on law can perhaps best be understood in light of the contrast between it and a similar reaction that takes place between other legal systems and changes social, economic, political, uh, in other cultures. Many attitudes towards the purpose and the function of law in different societies can be discerned. I see that there are some, some lawyers in the crowd, so they will certainly know that this is the case. Now, those who conceived of law, generally, as something that is kind of a necessary evil, something that is artificial, that is arbitrary in its nature, strictly coercive, although they also argued that it was necessary, that it was beneficial. Without law, society would uh, be reduced to anarchy. The way to foster cooperation and harmony is only by imposing uh, laws and a legal structure. The Greek sophists of the 5th century BCE were proponents of this view. In more modern times, the enlightened self-interest of Thomas Hobbes captured this perspective and the view of legal and political positivists who denied any connection between law and legal systems on the one hand and the claim of morality and justice on the other. On the other hand, there are other secular views of law. These views advocate what they call a rational and in some cases a natural and in other cases even a divine basis for law and for legal structure. In secular thinking, again, this idea is associated somewhat with Plato, with Aristotle, natural law with the Stoics. They reject arguments that was put forward a moment ago that adherence to law is strictly coercive, externally motivated, because otherwise society will fall apart. From their perspective, there is intrinsic value to law and to order. Of course, these themes, of course, it's much more complex than that, are central to any evaluation of the flexibility of law as it encounters different conditions. The more that one believes that law is there only to prevent anarchy, and it has no inherent value and significance, the easier, of course, that legal system will be to adapt, to be flexible, to change. There's nothing really holding back from such change. And yet, while the structure and purpose of a given society, its perspective on the purpose of its legal system, all of these are crucial in this consideration of the interaction between law and changing conditions, it's also perfectly clear that even the most ambitious perspectives of secular law fall quite short of the perspective of how halacha perceives law. The fact is, when significant pressures are brought to bear, since the actual content of secular law, its rules, its methods of application, are rooted in human origin and in human authority, it is not that difficult, under any conditions, to transform the law. As long as the broad principles of rationality and fairness are not really clearly trampled upon in a blatant way, alternative means of attaining the same basic conclusion and objective can be found, sometimes less intrusively, sometimes more efficiently, certainly when conditions change in a way that suits and is attuned to the newer times uh, in which people live. Only the innate conservatism or some other extraneous interest needs to be overcome under these conditions. The perspective on law and social and human development previously mentioned, of course, cannot be applied to religious law generally, and especially not to the world of Torah, halacha, 
and mitzvahs. Because the origin and the authority of halacha is divine, it is clear that it's not going to be subject to basic revision. This proposition constitutes one of the, or really two of the, 13 ikare amuna of the Rambam. In many rabbinic sources, the very concept of divinity, of the Rabbana Shalom himself, is tied up with the immutability of his law. The two themes are sometimes expressed as one idea, one sensibility. Lo yachali fakel, lo yamir dasav. There can be no one other than the Rabbana Shalom to be divine in the world, and his laws are immutable. Moreover, according to some poskim, even the attempt to coerce one to renounce this tenet, force somebody as a matter of principle to reject the idea of the immutability of halacha, that constitutes an act of heresy that is to be resisted on the basis of the principle of Yeharik Vayavor, a dimension of Abizrayu Davarazar. Of course, this emphasis is clearly accented in the Rambam, as I noted earlier. Because the Rambam not only counts the immutability of the law, the fact that Halacha is Ludori Doros Leolam in his Ikari Amuna, but he also emphasizes the uniqueness of Nevuas Moshe Rabbeinu. And Rambam explains in Ochus Torah that the significance of Nevuas Moshe Rabbeinu being unique, inimitable in every way, is precisely the fact that the Halacha, which was, of course, conveyed by Moshe Rabbeinu, could never be replaced by any other conveyance, by any other prophet. Moreover, the Rambam Paskins that a would-be prophet, even one whose credentials seem to have been authentically established, seems to be fine Torah authority in every way, his predictions and prognostications have come true, and yet who invokes his nevuah, his prophetic insight, in the area of halachic interpretation and ruling, such an individual is subject to the death penalty as a Navi Shekhar. That appears to be a very harsh ruling of the Rambam, but in fact, upon further reflection, as the Rambam explains it, it is merely a function of the very idea that we just spoke of. The idea that the Torah is immutable, Torah Hashem Tamima, the idea that Ein Navi Rashoi L'Chadish Meata, Prophet does not have the ability to change the halacha either, notwithstanding his credentials. All of this protects the system of the halacha and its immutability. If so, it appears that halacha cannot be abrogated. We lack both the authority and the technical mechanism to ever change significantly the halacha. Halachists then when they confront social, economic, political, other changes in reality, must do so primarily as responsible interpreters and as authoritative decisors of what they have received. That vast and comprehensive code which we call the world of halacha of Torah. But the fact is that divine origin and divine authority, while crucial, represent only one facet of halacha's uniqueness. And it is a point of departure for a much more fundamental distinction between halacha and secular law. The fact that halacha is divinely ordained also establishes it as the singular component in Jewish life and in the religious quest of every individual Jew. It ascribes to its content and its implementation religious and spiritual value which defy any kind of secular comparison or analogy. It's interesting, most Jewish historians have always tried to focus on the impact of philosophy or rationalism or Kabbalah or Jewish spirituality in trying to describe the uniqueness of the Jewish people. But the fact is that it's only halachic commitment, the sense of the centrality of halacha, the importance of its observance, that represents the common thread that has defined and united Yadus throughout the generations up until our own era, tragically. The precipitous decline in halachic observance since the Enlightenment 
the unfortunate state of Jewish observance and knowledge in the last half century in particular has clouded the issue somewhat, influencing historians and secular Jews in a way that is misleading. But the fact of halacha's centrality, significance, its defining character, is a shining truth nonetheless. The central problem in all of religion is how man, impotent man, limited man, intellectually limited man, is able to establish a relationship with the Rabbana Shalala, with God who is, after all, omnipotent, omniscient. The fact that we can't even express anything about the Rabbana Shalala in clear terms, what in philosophy they call the problem of negative theology, that itself is indicative of the wide gap that must exist between man and his creator. And yet, every religious system works on the assumption that notwithstanding that difficulty, there is a mechanism, there is a way for limited man to reach out to his omniscient and omnipotent creator. The world of Torah sees revealed halacha as that bridge. And it sees an act of chesed, part of the Ramona Shalom, as having provided us with that mechanism to reach out to him, to interact with him, to have a relationship with him. The precise role of reason in Yadus, again, is something that is subject to debate. It came to a head in one sense, and the controversy over the Rambam's works in the Middle Ages. But even the most confirmed rationalists, like the Rambam and Rav Sajagon, even those argued that it was this chesed, this bridge that the Rabboni Shalom provides to us, that allows us the opportunity to have a full and significantly meaningful relationship with him. While there are mishpatim and chukim, laws that are revealed and laws that are rational, sometimes called shimios and sichlios, and other names. The fact is that all of these are necessary for the personal religious growth and for the relationship that every Jew needs to establish with their bonus And for that reason, what took place at Maimon Har Sinai, the revelation of Torah Shebechsav and with it Torah Shebalpeh, is the crucial event of every Jew's life and of the nation's life as well. A Jew's spiritual development, his quest then, focuses almost exclusively on his commitment to and his punctilious observance of the Tayyad mitzvos and the values that are expressed by those mitzvos, by the world of halacha. The Gemara explains that after the Chorban, Eila Kodesh Baruch that focus on halacha became even more intense. The Rav Zechitzadik Nebracha profoundly enhanced our understanding of the halacha centrality of Judaism, of the central paramount place that halacha plays in our life. In this magnificent depiction of the Isha Halacha, the man of halacha, and in his other writings and teachings, the Rav developed and formulated the conception that halacha consists of an ideal structure of values, of principles, of ideas that are embedded in legal obligations and norms. It's man's obligation, if he is a Shomer Torah mitzvos, indeed his very purpose, to actualize, to realize those perfect norms, to internalize them to the best of his capabilities, and to, the, and to apply them to the imperfect world that man inhabits. Every action then, decision, judgment, evaluation, even more general attitudes, cultivated by a Torah Jew, is properly put through or subjected to a prism of halachic values for its ultimate validation, for its ultimate justification. Every Jew's spiritual ambition then needs to be, in some sense, encapsulated in the charge of the mission of Avos. Batel Ritzoncha Mepnei Not only in the sense of suppressing one's ego and, in fact, 
uh, suppressing one's personal interests in order to implement the norm or the ideology. But in terms of internalizing the values so that those values become the foundation for cultivating a Torah personality. Rav Shamshin Hirsch used to comment midrashically, of course, in a very powerful way, on Kavata Itim La Torah, the idea that he expressed was that every Jew has to ask himself whether he has shaped the Torah to the times or the times to the Torah. Of course, the proper answer being the immutable Torah is the foundation, it is the anchor. One relates to change at the time in which he lives through the prism of those eternal values. Secular legal systems on the whole were designed to meet the needs of a particular society in a defined geographic location and in a specific historical setting. Halacha, in sharp contrast, knows no such geographic or temporal boundaries. It's both prehistoric, Chazal conveyed to us that the Torah was created before the world itself, the Stakel Baraisa Bara Alma, and post-historic, certainly according to Shmuel, the most Rishonim Paschalite, Ein Bein Olamazer Limosa Mashiach, Ela Shibud Malchios the idea that the world of Torah and mitzvahs continues even in the time of Mashiach. Torah then is meta-historical. The triple Kabbalistic identification of Kutshubaraychu, Kutshubrichu Yisrael Baraisa Chadu, again, captures the idea. References to the Malachim on high, sitting in the Masifta de Rakia, studying the same sugyas that we struggle with here in our earth, in Arbate Medrash, establishes again that this is not only a system for this world, but a system of perfection to be actualized in the imperfect world. The contrast to secular law is self-evident. Even Choshen Mishpat, halachic civil law, which does have a central regulating function similar to that of secular law, is unique and has in addition a component, a very important component, of idealism, of principle, that transcends its pragmatic function. The fact is there are numerous Mamari Chazal, captured in Rabbi Yonah's well-known uh, comment at the beginning of Masachar Avos, which is reproduced in the Tours, Hakdama, Tchoshim Mishpat, that establish this practical orientation of Tchoshim Mishpat, regulating people, litigants, and so on. And the greater flexibility in Tchoshim Mishpat is undoubtedly due to the prominence of that motif if you're trying to determine the proper way to judge litigants. So, of course, there's going to be additional flexibility. The factor of shalom in addition to din, shara in addition to yikov hadin sahar, all of these are going to come into play. And therefore, there could be a view that masna mashakasa b'torah, b'tnai davar shibimamon, if people make conditions to waive dinei torah, in matters of Dine Mominus, both litigants agree, both parties agree. That's a debate between Rav Meir and Rav Yehuda, but there can be such a discussion that possibly that can be effective. However, notwithstanding this pragmatic and functional motif, the fact is that the same rabbinic methodology used to decide questions of Zoraim and Kachim and Taharos, which have no secular or functional pragmatic equivalent, operate in Chosh Mishpat as well. Chosh Mishpat's spiritual value, its stature, in terms of Talmud Torah, is not at all diminished by the pragmatic motif that I'm referring to. Indeed, the very same Rabbeinu Yonah who accents the pragmatic aspect of Chosh Mishpat also has a, an astonishing interpretation of Havu Masunim Bedin in which he interprets that if you really want to understand the Rabbeinu Shalom, if you want to gain access to Yediyah Hashem, Hevu Mesunim Bedin, you really need to understand Din, Choshem Mishpat. The idea being that this interface between the practical world and the ideal world is the true gateway to an understanding of the Rabbanu Shalom and of the world of Torah and Halakha. Other critical differences also 
differentiate halacha from other laws. While much of secular philosophy views law as a necessary evil due to man's egoistic nature or something that happened early in his history, Christian theologians, even those theorists who articulate a positive function for law, I referred to them earlier, do not entirely deviate from the idea that ideally man should largely be unencumbered. Positive law, in their view, is significant, but limited. Its contribution notwithstanding, law should not encroach too much on man's freedoms and his personal life. It shouldn't interfere with his autonomy. The perspective of halacha is diametrically the opposite. Halacha's scope is all-embracing and all-consuming. Every aspect of man's life is regulated and governed by halachic norms, defined by halachic classifications and by categories. Whether it's the most mundane and material and private aspect of one's life or the most public. Physical pleasure, consumption of food, marital life, business ethics, all of these equally come under halacha's scrutiny. Every bit as much as ritual and prayer and the worlds of taharoth and kachin. Torah law even tells us what it is that we should be believing. And so on. What is the Jewish attitude to this incredibly comprehensive and unrestricted scope of law? Not one of unhappy resignation, but quite the opposite. It's seen as an act of chesed and a spiritual opportunity. When the Rabbi Shalom wanted to merit Klal Yisrael, he increased the scope of Torah and of mitzvahs by allowing even the mundane, even the routine to become ennobled and sanctified, the Rabbi Shalom truly gave us a special gift. Far from being a burden, that all pervasive halacha invests us with real meaning, every deed, every action, holding out the potential to be an act of Avodah Hashem. It's no surprise that halacha equates true freedom and liberation with the possibility of being engaged in the Tariyah Mitzvahs. Avadai ha'eim v'la'avadim la'avadai ein ben chorin ela mishosek b'torah. The unique character then of halacha, not only in terms of its origin and authority, but with respect to its scope and its function, clearly presents a dramatic contrast to any other conception of law. As such, halacha is not likely to conform to other legal systems' interaction with social change. It stands to reason that even if you set aside problems of origin and authority, Halakha should be less subject to societal whim, to trends, even to legitimate halakha's social currents, since invariably any adjustment of the ideal halakha detracts from the spiritual fulfillment or the potential of ideal spiritual fulfillment afforded by embracing the full tayyak. If the Torah embodies perfection, Torah Hashem Tamima, then the question arises, why would one want to, even if one had license to, tamper with that perfection? Halacha never can be perceived as an obstacle to be overcome, nor can the essence and multidimensionality of a divine halacha ever be captured precisely, accurately, by some human alternative, even if it seems more efficient in the short term. If halacha is designed not only to respond to situations, or crises, but is also prescriptive, it tells man what he should be doing, but of course it's meta-historical and should be immune largely to superficial historical pressures as well. And yet, while all of this is true, the meta-historical and the metaphysical dimensions of halacha that I've just described, the fact is that halacha is also very much a this-worldly religion and system. The details of halacha, its range and its scope, I alluded to them briefly before, unambiguously reflect the orientation of halacha being a very pragmatic system as well. 
Undoubtedly, there is no domain, domain that is not addressed by the world of Torah mitzvahs, precisely because all domains, including, including the most human of domains, are perceived to be significant according to Halacha's own worldview. For that reason, we even find that occasionally Halacha will sacrifice or concede its own standards as a concession to human weakness and to human behavior. Dibra Torah keneged yetzer hara, or lonitna ha-Torah le-malache ha-shares, Chazal tell us, occasionally it's clear that the halacha had to make a sacrifice just so that it could govern in this world. Though the phenomenon is rare, and it has to be emphasized, that it reflects an a priori, an internal halachic policy. That's a decision that was made by the Rabbana Shalola to make these concessions. It still does implicitly acknowledge the reality and the validity of the human factor in the ideal world of halacha. In fact, according to Chazal, the angel population, the Malachim, were excluded in favor of man from receiving the Torah precisely because Torah is designed to challenge man in the real world with all of his frailties and complexities to challenge him to develop and to cultivate spiritual greatness. Indeed, Halakha has always been acutely sensitive to this aspect of its mission, whether it's expressed in Latakein Olam B'malchus Shakai or in other expressions. The destiny of the Jewish people in all of its different geographic and historical settings has always been to try to develop that human element and to ennoble it. Anybody, even a novice, who is familiar with the world of Halakha, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Shulchan Aruch, knows the extent to which various Halakhos, Takanos, Xeros, are meant precisely to focus on man's development, taking into consideration the realities that confront him in any given era, while at the same time struggling to maintain the integrity of the ideals and the values and the perfection of the system. Halakha is both mindful of human potential and of human limitation. For that reason, its comprehensive program is undertaken in a spirit of realism, which necessarily has to have a mechanism to confront changing reality. The realization of perfect halakha in the imperfect world is of course one that is subject to a world that is subject to different trends and different currents is one that generates powerful tensions and entails considerable difficulty. The fact that exposure to the real world and even to social and cultural milieus that are different from each other is not only inevitable but in some cases measure of participation in the broader environment may itself be a positive value just complicates or exacerbates the problem further. At the same time, the interaction of a halakhic personality with the broader environment that he inhabits is not only problematic, it's not only one dimension. The challenge of living a full and an uncompromising halakhic life under circumstances that test one's dedication to halakhic norms and values can also be spiritually ennobling and enriching. Coping with spiritual adversity, overcoming, affords a unique opportunity to exercise meaningful leadership, to discover in oneself resources, spiritual resources that one perhaps didn't know existed, engaging in public and private aspects of Kiddush Hashem. Some Jewish thinkers have even suggested that there's an element of Hashkacha divine providence that places individuals with special talents and sensitivities in different eras to be able to cope with and in some cases extract from the social situations in which they inhabit that which enhances the world of Torah mitzvahs. Rav Kook used to explain the, expre- explain the expression Elokai Adshelo Natsarti Eni Kedai in this way, meaning I was meant to live to contribute precisely in a certain age because of my unique talents, the exposures that I will have, and so on. For that reason, halachically it is axiomatic that man ultimately controls not his society, but he controls his response and therefore 
his own spiritual destiny. He's capable of improving his spiritual environment, is mandated to do so for his own sake and for the sake of his fellow man. Challenging experiences do not just reflect the intensity and depth of one's devotion, they also constitute the basis for increased self-awareness, for personal religious growth that inspires, in the end, greater loyalty and greater religious ambition. Chazal undoubtedly meant to convey that in the comment, Yaakov's response to Esav, in Lavan Garti, the Tayyad Mitzvah Shamarti, recorded by Rashi. Surely it's consequential that Yaakov became Yisrael only in the aftermath of his struggle with Sora Shalesa. Only in the context that culminated a lengthy sojourn in Lavan's and Esav's world, very far from the rarefied atmosphere, which was his anchor, though, and his foundation, that Ohel in which he studied. Exile in Egypt, the Kurabarzel, undoubtedly was an indispensable precursor to Matan Torah. Moshe's training ground for quintessential leadership was, of course, Beis Paro and the desert of Yisro. And while one certainly doesn't seek spiritual adversity or climates that are hostile to halachic values, one never should, it's still evident that conditions that endanger the religiosity of some also sharpen the contrast between religious and secular life, accenting and reinforcing what it is that is truly unique and special and the opportunities provided by the world of Torah, crystallizing that which is unique in halachic life. Moreover, as I alluded to earlier, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility that certain exposures to the societies in which we live may actually contribute to and even enhance halachic commitment and a greater realization and internalization of ideal halachic principles. The possibility of such encounters, rare though they are, and not usually the ones that we are worried about and concerned about, enables us to engage the modern world even as a lechatchila, as long as we keep the guidelines clearly, clearly in our minds. An integral part of the halachic process, then, entails the effort to engage and to apply the ideal, the immutable, the divine halacha and its principles to changing conditions, to evolving realities, to the realities that prevail in the real world. It employs, for example, various methods and strategies to resolve conflicts between ideally complementary halachic principles that are ideal in ideal worlds and in most worlds, but principles that unfortunately come into conflict in some situations. These generate the need to determine priority and the need to determine flexibility. There are several models of these. Again, time doesn't permit me to elaborate too much. I'd like at least to mention several of them. One, of course, one mechanism for coping and dealing with change is the idea of the idea that reluctantly we are allowed in certain situations to choose one value over another if there is no better way to solve the problem. Of course, was invoked when Chazal determined reluctantly that it was necessary to record Torah Shabbat even though its preferred form was to be as it is Torah Shabbat the oral law. The principle of necessary, unhappy compromise that is halakhically justified only after sober halakhic reflection by Gedolim is one that is equated in Chazal to the amputation of a limb in order to save a life. It is the spiritual and communal equivalent of pikoch nefesh, which sometimes is dochet. Certainly such decisions reflect the need for halachic flexibility, when if you don't make the hard choice, you lose the even more basic and primary value. But clearly such flexibility ideally should be avoided as it constitutes simply the lesser of two evils. 
although it might be halachic justified, halachically justified, if it is the only choice available. Concessions made by some poskim for the sake of kiru, for the sake of misunderstandings that can lead to chilol Hashem, or other such paramount values come under this category. There's another mechanism. That is the mechanism of legal, legal circumvention, circumvention, which is spoken of often and often spoken of inaccurately. Non-halachic groups, the Reform and the Conservative, and even others who are closer to us, mistakenly quote legal circumventions as examples of absolute rabbinic flexibility in the face of social change. The fact is that an analysis of any legal circumvention defies this representation and proves it to be absolutely incorrect. The model, of course, the most prominent case, is Hillel's Prusbal. Hillel's Prusbal was enacted as a method of circumventing the halakha of Shemitah's Ksafim, the debt cancellation that was to take place every seven years when one Jew had an outstanding loan to another, and the Torah says that ideally that should be canceled by the end of the Shemitah year. Hillel found that to be too onerous in the society in which he lived, and therefore suggested that Jews transfer their personal debts to Bezdin, a body not subject to the principle of Shemitah's Ksafim, in order that they be able to collect those debts after the Shemitah year. The fact is that if you analyze Prisbal, the model, and if you analyze any other example of a legal circumvention which was endorsed by Halacha, whether it be Heteriska, for Ribbis, Mechiras, Eretz Yisrael, the Heter, Mechiras it's called, for Shemitah, Mechiras Chametz, if you analyze any of them, it becomes perfectly clear that there are two necessary components that uh, determine the validity of such legal circumventions. The first is the absolute legality of the mechanism itself. It is a mistake to quote legal circumventions as an example of flexibility that is applied indiscriminately and without regard to the halacha's binding force. The fact is, every legal circumvention was established in a way that is effective. Bezdin is not subject to the principle of Shemitah Tzafim, and therefore, if they are the ones who are in charge of debt collection, that principle, Daraisa, would not apply. A partnership is not a loan between two Jews, and therefore, the reformulation of loans into partnerships, Heteriska, escapes the principle of Ribis. Mechiras Chametz is an effective mechanism which transfers ownership of Chametz to a non-Jew, who is not subject to the principle to the Iser of Bayura Bayimatze. In fact, if you look at these circumventions, the legal mechanism is even more stringent than it needs to be. Anybody who's involved in Mechiras Chametz knows that we multiply the Kinyanin. And we do so probably because psychologically and just legally, we want to make double, triple, quadruple sure that this mechanism is going to be perfectly and absolutely effective. But, legal circumventions foundation with a legal mechanism is only the beginning. Far more important after that fact is the spiritual justification why it is that we would want to circumvent perfect halacha. That component, the spiritual halachic desirability under the circumstances, is the most important aspect of legal circumventions. Again, the case of Prusbal is, pra- is paradigmatic. Nimnu ra hilal hil saw that nimnu ha'am milahalvo that people stopped lending money to each other because they were worried that the Shemitah year would come and cancel the debts. What people don't realize is, but it's obvious if you analyze it, that Shemitah's Ksafim is an extraordinary chesed. One Jew lends money to another Jew, all those years he doesn't take interest, he's already involved in an act of chesed. And on top of that chesed, the Torah every seven years says, you know what, we allow this fellow Jew 
to start anew without any encumbrances. He doesn't have to repay his debt. That's a chesed on top of a chesed. What Hillel began to realize was that this extraordinary ideal was beginning to come at the expense of a much more basic, foundational chesed. The lending of money, gaining access to credit, the foundation for business life and for people to be able to make a living, that was being jeopardized because of the higher ambition to extend it several steps further. So Hillel said, this is an unfortunate reality. But for internal halachic reasons, it is simply inconceivable that we will demand Shemitah Tzachim and watch as people stop lending money doing a much more basic chesed in the process. For the very reasons that Shemitah Tzachim is desirable, it became necessary to find a legal method of circumventing Shemitah Tzachim in order to safeguard, in order to salvage the more basic anchor of halva of lending money without rivets. The same can be said, more or less, with respect to the impetus behind the other legal circumventions as well. The fact that sometimes they have been abused throughout the generations in situations where it's not really that crucial and necessary, <laughs> some cases of heter iska, and so on, does not alter the fact that the halachic sanction and justification was rooted exclusively in these two elements, in the legality, absolute legality on the one hand, and the halachic internal spiritual desirability um, at the same time. The fact is that halacha relates to change in other ways as well. I see my time is almost up. I'm just going to take another few minutes. Uh, I think we began a little late, so I have a little bit of license. In addition to employing methods outright conflicts, to solve outright conflicts between halachic principles and norms, many of which are generated by social, economic, political pressures, and so on. Halachists who live in evolving societies have to confront halachic changes that come under the rubric of simply uncharted territory. And here I'm referring not only to technological or medical advances, which of course need a halachic response, but also to social and moral issues that arise anew. I understand that Rav Twersky is going to be addressing one of them um, in the next in the next uh, year. Some contemporary subjects like genetic engineering combine both motifs. There's a social uh, aspect to it, intellectual aspect, as well as technological elements, making particularly strong demand on contemporary halachists. Halacha, if it is to remain vital and viable has to always have the means to respond to such innovations. And this entails not only an impressive grasp of halachic details, but an exceptionally sophisticated understanding of halacha's principles and its nuances. Acute halachic intuition that transcends the sum of one's knowledge and of one's specific experience is critical in addressing uncharted territory. These intangibles can only be attained by one who totally immerses himself in the world of Torah and Halacha with the unqualified conscious commitment that he wants to be shaped by its values and he wants those values to define him more than any other influence. In addressing innovation as in determining priority in cases of conflict, it's obvious that one cannot assess Halachic issues in a vacuum without fully appreciating the relevant operative external forces or factors, social, economic, political, and so on. A truly effective halachist is one who is attuned to his broader environment, who cultivates an instinct for determining how and what information is relevant in the application of a particular halacha, what is consequential. It's evident that poskim who address problems linked with subtle social forces or political developments need to be sensitive, even keen observers of the society in which they live. Just as one would expect Bale Halacha, who passed in on matters of technology and medicine, to have the requisite familiarity with the concepts and with the facts. Here, of course, despite the divine and immutable character, Halacha is able to move forward 
and to move forward effectively. Halachic legislation in our time is, of course, extremely limited for many reasons we will go into right now. But halacha continues to retain the capacity to respond to innovation and to difficult choices. The fact that most of halacha is rooted in concepts, even though it is reflected in details and facts, is what allows for this transition. Constant analysis, examination, evaluation of the basic tenets of halacha is essential, is the essential component in addressing new issues. Ironically, classical Talmud Torah is a critical component then in confronting modern changes, while at the same time, faced with the challenge of changes in uncharted territory, academic, theoretical, idealistic Talmud Torah is transformed by the process of Poskin trying to relate to new and unique circumstances. The reciprocity between the Posek then and the Talmud Chacham is a critical element in approaching change, social, economic, and any other change. The dialectic between theoretical analysis and practical need is clear and manifest. The precise character of many Malachos Shabbos have been redefined by trying to confront modern issues, Navier and Bonet, electricity, the Shabbos clock, and so on. And the same thing is true with respect to defining life and death, brain death and respiration, and the same thing is true with respect to grappling with those more subtle issues, social change, the challenges of egalitarianism, the challenges of change in women's status, the challenge of all the various trends in the modern world. Insider trading, copyright laws, many examples can be brought. My time is almost up. Again, I would like to be able to speak more concretely, but I don't have the opportunity at the moment. The fact is that Bali Halakha need to confront these challenges, and they need to do so with, I think, a dual perspective. Number one, they should not be reticent of the challenges themselves. They need to confront them with a sense of confidence that they can be um, confronted. And, of course, at the same time, the other element is that sense of humility. On the one hand, the principle of Yiftach Bedoro, Kishmuel Bedoro, Eladayan, Elamash Enav Roos. The fact is that if you are the postdoc of your generation, then you need to take a stand on the issues confronting that generation. But at the same time, I say this sense of you're not only a POSIC for this generation, but you have the precedence both in specific issue in front of you, more important methodologically of previous generations. And that one's PSAC in a particular generation is not only a PSAC relating to a specific circumstance short term, but that one has that responsibility for the world of halacha, its past, of course its present, but being Roas Hanolad, its future as well. In addition to the socially generated clash of values and the need to address innovation, the halachic challenge posed by social and other human developments may take another form as well. With this one, I'll conclude. At times, changing currents demand a reassessment not of halachic principles, but of halachic applications. Whether the previous applications of those principles that have become so ingrained and entrenched that sometimes the line between the principle and the application have become blurred, whether they don't require a reassessment that might direct us to even a better implementation of the principle. Sometimes lakula, sometimes lakula. The reassessment of applications is sometimes complicated. Often, there is more than one factor involved in a halachic issue or ruling. A particular halacha may have an inherent, objective, immutable component, not subject to any kind of change. And it also may have some subjective element in which the cultural milieu is very critical and even decisive. The result of this is that only one of two components, in this case, would be affected by the changing circumstance or the perception of changing circumstance. As a matter of halachic policy, 
Poskin would also have to consider being raw sanola, the slippery slope. Today it's very much denigrated, it's a topic connected to this, but I don't have time to develop, as public policy, but what really is halachic values or halachic policy, being Rovas Anolad, Mishmeris Mishmarti, the notion of Siag Torah, one has to take into consideration whether people who confuse the application for the principle aren't also likely to confuse a change with respect to the policy of the application with a change in the policy of the principle. Issues of tznius, human modesty, are of course a case in point. Again, I don't have the time to discuss specifics. The principle should suffice. In addition to the general idea of tznius, which, of course, is fully binding in all situations, it's a value, there are clearly also objective halachic issues and standards with respect to tznius that cannot be compromised under any conditions. Not necessary a moment to determine what parts need to be covered and how and, and so on, but there are elements in addition to the principle that are objective. At the same time, clearly there are subjective elements, elements having to do with the perception of society of what constitutes uh, proper, improper behavior, clothing, and so on, that come into play as well. Halakha itself recognizes with respect to the issue, for example, of moredes or moreid, what constitutes rebellious behavior in various contexts, that aspects of rebelliousness, just like respectful behavior, are partially at least very much a function of societal norms. An Iranian woman who parades down the streets of Tehran in Western garb is somebody who is intentionally making an unmistakable statement. The very same woman may walk down Fifth Avenue and simply blend into the crowd. The same statement can be made with respect to Shabbos attire. There is a notion that one is to dress differently in a more respectful manner on Shabbos, a more formal manner. But what exactly that is in different countries, in different eras, is clearly something for which there is great flexibility. Clearly the issue is not limited to Tzniyus, although it's very important to that. Let's give one example, this I'll conclude. Rabbi Feinstein argued that a father's obligation to support his children in their formative years, which according to the Gemara, really represents an absolute obligation only perhaps to the age of six, extends in our era, parents will be happy or unhappy to hear this, up to the age of 20 and even beyond. Since in our society, the expectation is that people are children until that time, and sometimes even beyond. It's that point when people generally assert their independence and leave their father's home, are no longer dependent upon his largesse. So Moshe Feinstein explains the primary foundation, the primary foundation for the obligation of support is the mother's prerogative that in a reasonable way her children be cared for until they reach the age or the stage of independence. And that stage, argues Ramosha, that's how, is contingent upon the expectations and the trends of society in question. The principle of support is not one that has changed ki but its application in a different social reality is one that does. Of course, in applying this distinction, it becomes necessary to determine when we're dealing with nothing more than the application, as opposed to the specific content, the specific contours of a ruling, which are obviously more dore doris. For that, sophisticated halachic expertise alone is needed to differentiate, especially when the lines are blurred. Let me conclude by saying something about the POSIC. Again, I'm sorry for having gone a little over time on the one hand and not completed the topic and, uh, or even approximated its completion on the other. There's much confusion, I think, in our world and there's much that hinges upon a proper understanding of the role of the POSIC. I think one can discern three basic or identify three basic um, perspectives. The two are extreme and, I think, unacceptable one is fundamentally unacceptable. The other is simply wrong. The third, I think, is the proper perspective. On the one hand, 
people who don't understand the halachic process perceive the posek as being almost completely subjective. They see him as a person who has an agenda, as a person who manipulates the sources for the goal that he is convinced must emerge from the process. In some cases, they formulate this in an extremely cynical way. They suggest that he is motivated by self-interest and is aware of his own self-interest. In other cases, they argue that this is subtle, but true nonetheless, that you can define a person's psakalacha, you can predict a person's psakalacha, if you were to understand fully his personality, his exposures, his inclinations, and so on. Sometimes this is called when there is a rabbinic, I say it wrong all the time, when there is a rabbinic will, there is a halakha. That position is totally unacceptable uh, in Orthodox Judaism. It suggests that Bali halakha are either living in a dream world and don't understand their own reality, or that they are cynical, manipulating, um, in order to come up with a particular conclusion or set of conclusions uh, that are either self-interested or community-interested. And of course, the integrity of the halakhic process does not allow for such a position even to be considered. The other perspective, the opposite one, which I also think is incorrect, but it's just incorrect, um, there's nothing ideologically wrong with it, is the view that a posek is a computer. That basically he receives data, he inputs it into his system, and he produces an answer. That perspective sees the process of psakalacha as one that is totally objective, where the personality, the exposures, the life of the posek, and his personal inputs are completely excluded as well. That position allows really for only one answer. doesn't really allow for Let's say it takes the posek out of the process. I think clearly anybody who's familiar with the way that Sakalacha works and the way poskim have worked knows that that is not the case either. I don't think that it's ideologically unacceptable, but it makes, ironically, it reduces the stature of the posek it takes him out of the system, it makes him a technician. Making him a technician is also dangerous in terms of its implications. The true role of a posek in halacha is somewhere in between these extremes. Not just in between the extremes, it's the formulation which is important in its own. Chazal see a posek, see rabbinic authorities, as walking sifretone, who are more than the sum of their parts. They themselves have input and make a contribution to the halachic system. That's what the glorious chain of Mesorah is really all about. And that's the reason why we give credit. Omer Dara B'Shem Amro may be Gula Liola. That's why there can be a Mesorah from Moshe Rabbeinu, and we can say, Kol Mashat Tamid Vasik, Asa L'Chadesh, Nehmer L'Moshe Misinai, on the one hand, everything traces its way back, because the system works in a reasonable way, based on the Koros, and so on. There's a certain amount of objectivity in it. And at the same time, we can get credit, we can say that each chain in that link is a nofech mishalom. We can talk about Chiddush, and so on. The posek is a person who first and foremost commits himself, both in his time and in his uh, ideological commitment, to the world of Torah, to the world of Halacha. And as I said before, his primary commitment is to be shaped by its values. That is the filtering mechanism that allows his own personality, his own experiences, to be filtered out when necessary, but also to make a contribution when necessary. Because, as I said before, sometimes social change or exposure to certain trends can be a positive thing. It can sensitize us to things that otherwise we would miss in hafochba, hafochba, vikulaba. The posek who is more than the sum of his parts, whose commitment to Torah outweighs everything else, but who is able then to bring his own personality, his own experiences, 
to enrich that process is someone who glorifies the process, is someone who contributes to the texts and the precedents before him, someone who also makes a contribution at the very same time. It's that posek, don't say that he's easy to find, it's a different matter, and a different issue, but it's that posek who has to be charged with the responsibility of confronting halakhic change in all of these different ways, and of course, in many more as well. Torah Hashem Tamima, on the one hand, Kiheim Chayenu Ba'orech Yameinu, Torah Chayim, on the other. The two are not a stira, not a contradiction at all. It's the challenge of each and every one of us in our own way, to renew our commitment, to renew our support for those gedolim who really have to take on these naughty, thorny issues, to recommit ourselves to this notion of a divine halacha on the one hand, but one which is disworldly, effective in perfecting the imperfect world that we live on the other. Thank you.